All right, welcome to A Headmaster's Memoir. I'm your host, Logan Russell. Um, I'm joined today by Dr. Rick Melvoin. Dr. Melvoin is a product of Harvard College. He received his master's and PhD in American history from the University of Michigan as well. Um, and we're pleased to have him. Dr. Melvoin, how are you? I'm great. Nice to be with you, Logan. Awesome. Um, so as you guys know, I have master's memoirs about the stories, uh, advice, challenges of those who are leaders in independent schools. Dr. Melvoin was a leader at the Belmont Hill School for 25 years, serving as their head of school. Uh, so Dr. Melvoin, can you first of all tell me, how did you get into the independent school world? We all have our stories one way or another, so I'd love to hear yours. Happy to give you a sense of mine. I'm a public high school kid from suburban Chicago, and where I grew up, there were very few independent schools, and the sense was that the only students, kids who went to independent schools were either really rich or really messed up. So that was our sense, and we went to, a, I had a very good suburban public high school, Highland Park High School outside Chicago, and so never had thought about going anywhere other than in the public schools. Yeah. But when I came to Harvard as an undergraduate, I ended up doing a lot of work in the field of education. There was no education major at Harvard. I actually, the route I was I went through was mostly in the study of history, but I was studying history of American education and did an undergraduate thesis looking at school reform and was thinking about the world of teaching. The problem was that at Harvard you couldn't get certified to teach in a public mm. school. So in the spring of my senior year, I talked to a dean I knew at Harvard who said, well, if you want to teach, there are these things called private schools, and you don't have to have a teaching degree. And I said, well, all right, time to, time to learn more. Now, this is the spring of 1973. I'm really dating myself, but there was no Teach for America. That was a good 15 or 20 years away from being even created. Yeah. Um, there was no AmeriCorps. There were no opportunities that I knew of, at least, to be able to get out into the public sector or do it through through public service. So I was able to find a job at Deerfield Academy in Western Massachusetts and, and charged out there to, to start into this world. I spent three years collecting law school applications because I thought maybe that would be a responsible <laughs> thing to do as I grew up. But as I visited friends who were in law school, most of them were just miserable. And in the meantime, I was at Deerfield. I was teaching, I was coaching, I was directing plays, I was working in a dorm, and, and I loved all of the work. And so by the fourth year, I said, this, is, this work in schools is something I want to continue to do. I went off to the University of Michigan, as you mentioned in the introduction, to do graduate work, but then went back to Deerfield as a second tour of duty because I really loved the work in, in schools, and independent schools gave great opportunities. To talk a little bit more about that, it was not only, one of the things I love about independent schools is that they, they are one of the few places that offer opportunities to someone who is a generalist, who wants to do more than one thing. So I enjoyed teaching, I loved teaching, that was the heart of the work, but I had been an athlete in college and the idea of being able to coach and work with young people in that context was fine. Um, I, I enjoyed doing theater and, and I, so I loved the multiplicity of possible roles. When I went back to Deerfield, I went back as the history department chair. So I started into an administrative path okay. then, did that for five years, and then became the dean of studies. So took sort of step by step, moving a bit away from the classroom, although I was always teaching, but getting a chance to do administrative work. 
that led me just to continue the thumbnail sketch. Yeah, yeah. After after doing that, being a Deerfield for 14 years uh, that I loved, I felt I needed to get out of Western Massachusetts. I needed to change things up. We had a young family. Um, as somebody who's um, who's Jewish and serious about faith, one of the worries about Western Massachusetts was our daughters were growing up in a place where there were no other Jewish kids yeah. and wanted to think about a different environment. But I also needed to grow. My, I had my PhD. I was thinking about different opportunities. So I actually came back to Harvard uh, as the assistant dean of admissions and financial aid, which was a fascinating yeah. five years, especially in the world now when we're thinking about affirmative action and yeah. thinking about uh, legacy and all the other issues that are swirling around admissions. And I loved the work. I also did some teaching. I was a lecturer in the history and literature program mm. for the college. So I was still teaching. I still had my time with students. But five years of that taught me that I really missed the age of students in independent schools. And after looking at some different positions, I was fortunate enough to be offered the job as head of school at Belmont Hill and stayed there for 25 years as head. Yeah, that's a wonderful story. Um, I guess one thing that comes to mind during your stories, I guess you said, you know, you got your PhD and you came back to Deerfield. Did you feel like at that point you knew you wanted an administrative role? Or like at what point did you realize, okay, I want to transition from maybe being, you know, in the classroom to be to being in a position where I can maybe influence things behind closed doors or maybe not closed doors, but um, just a larger scale position. When, when did you kind of realize that? It's a good question. I think it it was there in some ways from the beginning but grew over time. I think it was a kind of natural evolution. I'd, I'd always been a happy kid in school. Yeah. I liked the idea of working with students. I worked in summer camps. I, so the idea of being in and around students as life's work was, was very appealing. I also knew at some level at the beginning that I needed to do the, the core work of a school, which meant teaching, coaching, advising, and, and enjoyed all of that. So it was never, that was never a a pathway towards something specifically. Yeah. But after a period of time, I came to feel I'd like to try to do something different. And as I mentioned before, part of what I like about independent schools is they do give people opportunities to grow within an institution. Some people choose to go to different schools. For me, the path at Deerfield gave me enough different opportunities that it made it a good place to stay for a period of time. But after you know, 15 years of grading papers on the causes of the Civil War, <laughs> as important as it is to every student, I was I was increasingly ready for a change. Okay, well, that makes a ton of sense. So, in your path to leadership, I guess, what role do you think you played, whether that be coach, teacher, advisor, um, you know, department head? What do you think, out of those roles, informed your time as a leader the most? So, which role do you think was most influential into forming how you led, why you wanted to lead out of those roles? I'm not sure there's a single answer to that. I think the multiplicity of roles, I think, made me a better candidate to be a head of school or hopefully to be a better head of school because I had done those things. So when coaches would come in upset about, you know, facilities or not having good athletes or whatever the issue might be, I'd been a varsity coach. I understood what yeah. those pressures were and what those goals might be. 
first and most important is, is always the classroom for me. That's the heart of why schools exist. And so I think that was really important. And also as a department chair, I could go and talk to other department chairs or division heads about academic program. I could talk about pedagogy with some credibility. So I think all of them mattered. Being an advisor, as so many of us do as a requirement of being in an independent school, whether day or boarding, is a reminder of the different needs that students have. So I think each, each role played a part for me. Yeah, that's awesome. So, you know, you've paid your dues, you've had your time in the classroom as a coach, as a department head, and then, you know, you go off to Harvard, you come back, or rather you're looking for a role um, post-Harvard. What's the most shocking thing or unexpected thing you realized once you were hired as a head of school, as you maybe didn't expect um, to walk into or experience? That's, I think, a perfect question because... The, the wonderful irony and challenge, I believe, of headship, or at least headship as I experienced it, is this. Many of us who become heads of school have gone through that path, that internal path, teacher, coach, advisor, administrator, more senior administrator, and then you become a head. And then what happens is you look at what your job responsibilities are, and as a head, you're working with a board of trustees, which you may never have done before. You're in charge of finance, you know, building a budget, balancing a budget. You're working with facilities. Do we need to improve our facilities? Do we need to build new buildings? You're in charge of fundraising. And it's not that there aren't great administrators who have the lead responsibility in all that. The CFO, the director of yeah. development, the director of facilities and physical plant, they're, they're critical people, but they all report to you as the head. And ultimately, those are your responsibilities. And the teaching or working with students, I think for many of us in the profession, becomes a luxury. Yeah. Which I don't love, but I think, it's, but I think that's the reality of running a school, an independent school today. As you and I will share <laughs> later this fall when, we, when you're in the independent schools course that I teach at, at, at Harvard, one of the one of the big challenges is thinking about how how a head of school reconciles all of these issues and i like to I'll, I'll frame it in a slightly different way when alumni would come back to belmont hill it's always wonderful to see them or parents or people who are just interested in the school and what i would often say to them especially alumni is the heart of a school is students and teachers that's that's the heart of it yeah. But as the head of Belmont Hill, I was running a $29 million business. Yeah. That was the annual budget. <laughs> yeah. And if you don't run it well, you're going to be in trouble and you're jeopardizing the best, the, the heart of the school, yeah. which is giving teachers the chance to have the best facilities, the, you know, the best or the most appropriate students, the resources to be able to do their job. But that's the business part of it yeah. that you have to make work. Yeah. That's, that can definitely be shocking, I, I would say, if I spent most of my time in a classroom dealing with students and then all of a sudden, you know, you're ahead and they're slapping down financial statements in front of you. You got to look at this or this capital funding campaign or this construction project. Um, yeah. yeah, we'd like, you know, you have to go to the audit committee. And go, <laughs> I've never, you know, I'm supposed to read an audit. Yeah, I'm supposed <laughs> to understand these finances. And the answer is 
yes. Yeah. Or at least over time, be at least conversant in them. So then when that happened to you, how did you find yourself gaining these skills? Or as a head, like you said, many people are reporting to you, looking to you for the, the answer in many situations. Um, and in a situation like that, where you're not accustomed to these skills, how did you gain them? Or what was that feeling like to say, okay, I'm the leader, I'm the head, but I'm maybe not sure how to do this, or I've never experienced that. I'm not sure how to navigate this situation. How did you find yourself maybe supplementing the knowledge you needed in, in that regard if you didn't get it, per se, you know, in earlier parts of your career? I think there are two dimensions, at least two dimensions to that. Well, I could th- I'll go to three pretty quickly. <laughs> One is a disposition to want to learn. Part of, what, part of why I loved being a head of school, and I thought for 25 years I had just about the best job in the world, is that I was learning so much as I went. So it was a growth opportunity for me. Working on facilities, it's not a skill set I had, and I wasn't, it wasn't to me to pretend that I could know all those things, but I could at least be conversant enough to be able to think about what does a good classroom look like? How, do, how can we get there? And so there's an opportunity for me to do that. Uh, so, so part of it is, I think the head needs to have a, a willingness, not only an understanding that it's part of the job, but a willingness to say, all right, this is, this is my job yeah. and I'm going to go after it. So that's one dimension. A second dimension is having the right people on the bus, <laughs> yeah. uh, as, uh, you know, as Collins has written about. And that's tricky because if you're a brand new head and you don't have experience in that, How do you measure the success of your director of development or your CFO or your director of facilities? Because they report to you and you ultimately have to decide whether they're the right people for you and for the school. I was really blessed. We had such a, I inherited such a good team of leaders that I could learn from them. It doesn't mean I, it wasn't my job to challenge them at times, but but I was learning a lot from them. So I had a great advantage in that. And the third dimension for some of these is the work with a board of trustees. And that's a whole different dimension. The governance of an independent school is complicated at some level, simple at another, which is the simple part is you say, well, that the board hires the head and the head runs the school. But the board has huge responsibilities for oversight, for the fiduciary health of the school. And to have good trustees who serve on the finance committee and the development committee and the investment committee and could ask good questions and help the school strategically move forward allows for a wonderful partnership if you've got trustees who you, whom you can trust and with whom you can work. Yeah. And again, I was very fortunate going to, to Belmont Hill. It's such a good school. It was a good school before I got there. Part of it is you don't want to mess it up, but <laughs> but but there is a dimension of saying working with those different groups. I think you get a fighting chance at working on it, and you get to learn over time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I'm guessing, you know, like when you were department head at Deerfield, you know, there are other department heads you can kind of commingle with, talk about, you know, strategies or plans or concerns um, of the position. But when you're a head, there's only one head. So I can imagine that can get lonely at times um, if, you know, you're the singular head of of an institution. How do headmasters or heads of schools go about finding that community in terms of, you know, relating with others who are in the same position as them? 
I strongly encourage heads of school, especially new heads, to find colleagues, peers, whether in their home, t in their town where their school is, or perhaps not in the same town. People who, if they go, for example, to the NAIS Institute for New Heads and meet some people who are also starting out and find a group of people you can talk to. Because you're right, the job, as wonderful as it can be, is very challenging and is lonely and, or can be lonely. I, one of the tricky parts, I think, for those of us who moved up through a faculty or had been of a faculty and then become a head, whether at the same school or a different school, is I, I loved the members of my faculty, but they worked for me. And I couldn't be close friends with them. Or I didn't feel I could. Yeah. There have to be lines. Working with other heads in town can be a great support group. And I know it, at least around many metropolitan areas, there are groups of heads that get together on a regular basis. To be specific, here in Boston, we have a group of, I don't know, it's probably 30 or 40 heads in the area, in the region, who get together two or three or four times a year for dinner. And... It, it's, it's formal, but it's also informal. Yeah. Um, we had a group of seven of us, six or seven of us, who would meet for breakfast once a month. And is there some rivalry between schools? Yeah, and that could make it a little tricky at times, but over a period of time, we also knew we could trust one another. And to be able to go into a small group and say, I just had the worst mess, and be able to talk about it and talk through it, and note that there are other people who may have had a similar experience, or at least would be sympathetic, is invaluable. Yeah. I'd also take it one step further, and, and maybe this is going too far afield, but I think finding the balance between the job of head and a private life is also an important dimension to that. Yeah, I was just gonna ask you about that. Um, so, like, a lot of the heads of schools that I've spoken with, whether they're, you know, men or women, a pattern that at least I've noticed is that typically their spouse or partner um, plays more of a larger role, I guess, at home with the kids, with the family. I haven't necessarily run into a lot of heads of schools yet. I'm sure they're out there, obviously. Um, let's say, you know, the, the wife is the head of school of a school, and then, you know, the husband's a you know, high-powered attorney somewhere, like uh, a relationship where both partners are operating at a high level in their respective careers. And how do you manage that, like, with kids? I'm sure that can be tricky. I'm, like, what insight would you give into that? I would first acknowledge and honor what you just said, which is it is tricky and can be tricky. And I think a head has to be careful and protective of his or her time and, and keep the board mindful of what that means because, because if they, my feeling is if, if, if the home life or that personal private life isn't stable, it's really hard to do the job. It's hard enough to do the job when everything's perfect at home. <laughs> Not that everything's per ever perfect, but um, I, I think it's it's an area that, that requires a lot of thought and care. And also, for heads who stay long enough, it, it can evolve over a period of time. It's, you know, it's one thing when you have a head who has at home a five-year-old and a three-year-old. When, when I started, our daughters were 
15 and 13, not five and three. And so they were in sort of starting high school or just at the edge of high school age. And for the first four or five years that I was ahead, there were times I needed to get to my daughter's soccer game or her daughter's play. And I wasn't going to be at Belmont Hill all the time because I needed to see Sarah and Becca. Yeah. And I, I, didn't, I couldn't apologize for that. That was important. So I, and I think a head can be upfront with a board and, and set expectations. I'll give you a couple examples. I have a, a wonderful friend who was a successful head of school who is, is a musician and played banjo in a Dixieland group. Wow. And everybody knew that every, I think it was every Monday night or whatever it was, one night a week, Chris was out and he was with his band. And everybody knew, don't schedule anything when you want the head on Monday night because he's not going to be there. He's yeah. going to be with his band. Yeah. I have another colleague who, again, a long-term successful head of school, who at 4 o'clock every afternoon went out for exercise. His executive assistant knew it. Everybody knew it. He'd get out. He'd go out for a run. He might go watch practices or go hit a tennis ball with somebody on the side. But whatever it was... He protected that time. And even if that was new and different for a school, you can get used to that. Yeah. You can make those adjustments. No, I think that's important because, you know, if your head of school burns out or isn't allowed to rest or isn't protecting their time and feels kind of off kilter within, I'm sure that's going to affect, you know, how that person interacts with their staff, their direct reports, you know, even the kids on campus who are interacting with them. Um, and I'm sure that can definitely affect the vibe of, school i'm sure you can probably tell when a head of school um isn't doing that i'm, I'm sure um, yeah i think the and the sacrifice there's some sacrifice with the job it's a lot of hours it's a lot of responsibilities there are trade-offs for that and, and it's one it can be wonderful but but it can be hard and the other part is is working with a spouse or partner in a way that that works i i was incredibly blessed still am incredibly blessed by having a partner who wasn't doing it in a different profession, but in fact, she is in the same profession. She was a college counselor oh, wow. at three yeah. different schools for 25 years and had worked closely with other schools, had worked closely with heads of schools as a senior administrator yeah. at her other places. And she understood what the job was. So for example, when a tough discipline case comes, I, I could say to my spouse, you know, I'm not gonna see you for the next three or four days. This is going to just take, it's just going to eat hours and I'm yeah. sorry. And she go, I get it. So that was, it's not easy, but it, but it was helpful. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I want to transition from, I guess, maybe dealings with the head with their own family to, I guess, a school's larger context. You can say it's another family as well. And you kind of mentioned this earlier in the day when we had our advising meeting, but this role that maybe heads sometimes are playing, they don't maybe realize it, some do, maybe some are asked to play it, some are maybe not asked to play it. But this idea of almost like a, or the pastoral role that some heads play for their school communities. Um, can you speak on that a bit? I, I want and need to be careful about it. For me, it was the part of the job that I think I understood the least going in and may by the end have been the most important. That was for me uh, in thinking about 
my vision for a school and a school community, which extended to faculty and staff and their families, which extended to students and their families, to alumni and their families. And as one colleague of mine said, you know, if you do the job long enough, sometimes you have to take your turn when something really bad happens. And that's true. How, how a head responds to those situations varies. And, and that's where I'm trying to be careful not to impose my vision on other heads. I think there are other heads who yeah. say, that's not my job. I'm, we have a chaplain or the school will get through or we have counselors who do that. My feeling was that it's a it's a important mission. If you in the vision of having school as community, yeah. So it's and it's hard. It can be very hard, but I also think it can be rewarding in in building a vision of what one want what I think I I want a school to be. Yeah. No, that's that's definitely important, and that's how I felt when I went to you know Macaulay for my ninth or twelfth grade. Um, I think there were definitely people on campus who played that role. Um, I think oftentimes, at least in, in my experience, that was you know the dorm parents, um, advisors, um, coaches, teachers. Uh, I kind of did feel that maybe the upper level leadership of the school was definitely, I wouldn't say they were definitely helpful and definitely there for the kids. Um, but I think maybe maybe we can speak to this like larger schools compared to maybe smaller schools communities might feel different based on the size you know where the school's place D- different contexts can influence how a school feels or, or the the culture of that school I, I still believe that perhaps the single most important criterion for understanding school culture is school size not religious affiliation, not academic program, not location. It's size because a school of two or 300 works in a profoundly different way than a school of 1,200. And it's not that one is right or wrong, but they are different. And part of what worked for me at Belmont Hill is we were a school of about 400 or 450. We could all fit in the Hamilton Chapel. And so if we needed to come together as a school, we could do that. That's, that's difficult at some schools, just logistically, but it also may be difficult culturally. No, I think that's, I think one of the maybe underrated things that I think maybe people who are on the verge of becoming a head or in a position where maybe a head position is their next step, maybe identifying, okay, what type of school do I want to lead? I know my next step is maybe a head role, but really designated time to figure out, you know, do I want to be at an all-boys school or an all-girls school? Do I want to be at a larger school, a smaller school? Do I want to be at a faith-based school or not? Um, Because I think when you join a community, especially if you're coming from the outside, you're going to operate at your best when you feel comfortable within the confines or culture of that school. Um, And as you said, that's heavily dependent on the size of the school or, you know, other factors as well. I think you definitely would want to think about that. So when you were joining or decided to join Belmont Hill, did you think about maybe factors of like how is the size of the school going to affect the 
the culture and is that something I'm willing to step into or, or what role did that play for you in maybe deciding or, or what thought did you give into the type of school you wanted to join when making that decision? I think I had some sense of the issues. I think I had a more refined sense of it later as I came to realize sort of what I had, where I had landed. I'd actually been a finalist at two other fine schools where I was not offered the position. So I was, I was learning as I went through the, the whole process. Turned out they were both larger and I think they would have been really different experiences. Part of what resonated for me at Belmont Hill was the size felt really comfortable, the traditions felt consonant with what I had, what I liked and what I believed in. A lot from what I had done at Deerfield, which is the one place I knew pretty well. And so it felt like a pretty good fit. I think the issue you raised of gender is a fascinating one. I'm not sure for people who only worked or lived in co-ed schools, whether they fully understand what it's like to be at a boys' school or a girls' school. But I think there are really remarkable dimensions of what one can do at a school that's single sex that, that are just different at a co-ed school. So I, so I think all those things come into play. I'd worked at a boys' school, so I knew what I was coming into. Yeah. Um, and, and I liked I liked the size. I liked the traditions of the place. They felt they felt right for me. And yet it was also a school where the board said, "But we know we need to move forward in some important areas. Yeah. So here's here's your mandate and here's your opportunity." <laughs> yeah. So I think I think the time I get worried about aspiring heads is a little bit when someone says, "I just want to be a head. I'll go anywhere." Yeah. Because that that sort of works for a little while, but then it doesn't work. Because if you can't be your authentic self or you can't grow into a role where you feel comfortable with the culture of the, of the place and the style of the place, that's, that's difficult. So I think, I think the search process may take time for anybody who's thinking about being in a school. I think people don't usually land at their, you know, their perfect school. They may never land at their perfect school, but, but to go through searches enough to be able to say that's not the right one. There's a there's a man for whom I have great respect who was offered that he was a candidate and was offered a, a job at a very fine school, and he came to realize through the search process it ultimately wasn't the right school for him, and he didn't want to live that lie. As, t as exciting and rewarding as it was for a school, basically to say we'd we'd love to have you come. So yeah. that that took real courage in my mind. Yeah. Awesome. No, that's good insight. Uh, Dr. Melvoin, this has been good. Um, I don't want to take up any more of your time. Um, so I really appreciate you, you know, setting aside time for this conversation. It was a pleasure. Um, and for my listeners, thank you for listening to a Headmaster's Memoir. We appreciate your support. Um, be sure to follow on LinkedIn, and you can find us on Apple Podcasts and RSS.com. Thank you.